The Olympia Standard Podcast features calm, reasonable conversations about local issues in Olympia, Washington. Our goal is to help improve the quality of public discourse in our community and help us find solutions. This is the Olympia Standard. In this episode, we're going to hear an interview with Jess Turtelot Palumbo, conducted by Howard Rosenfeld. Jess is a candidate for position two on the Olympia School Board. Howard and I have known each other for years, and he used to host a public affairs show on KAOS radio back in the day. So when I realized I wanted some help this year with candidate interviews, I went straight to Howard. So without any further talky talk, here's Jess Turtelot Palumbo and Howard. Um, hi, I'm Howard Rosenfeld. Uh, to tell you a little bit about myself, during the day, I'm a data product owner for uh, Kaiser Permanente's Medical Foundation, where I support analytical functions um, in support of our clinical services in Washington and Colorado. Uh, when I'm not working, I dabble in local politics, music, and media issues. Uh, my prior radio experience was on KAOS as part of the weekly public affairs show, No Talking Heads. I did that for a year back in 2008. Uh, prior to that, I was a host of the Chaos Morning Show for many years, the Breakfast Special. I would also fill in for other hosts here and there. I've been a writer for Works in Progress covering the impact of the Patriot Act. Uh, I moved to Olympia from Gainesville, Florida, where I started a low-power FM station called Free Radio Gainesville that worked to legalize low-power FM. And also, I co-founded an independent library and artist performance space slash community organizing center called the Civic Media Center and Library. Since leaving Gainesville, the library has donated, had donated to it the personal collection of Stetson Kennedy, who gained notoriety for uh, exposing the Ku Klux Klan. I'm happy to say that we're here today interviewing a candidate for position two on the Olympia School Board. Um, and if I butcher your last name, correct me, this is Jess Turtle at Palumbo. Got it almost pretty on. Uh, <laughs> turtle lot. So always thinking okay. about where do turtles park in a turtle lot <laughs> and then Palumbo. Yeah. That's awesome. Okay. Well, thanks for being here with me today. Uh, I've been looking forward to talking to you. I was going to get into a recent uh, history of the school board, but actually I want to hear from you first, um, just to set the stage. Why don't you tell us a little about yourself and why you're running? Yeah, thank you so much. Um, and thank you for sharing your background. It's incredible, all the things that you've done. Um, so my name is Jess Trillat Palumbo, and I am running for the Olympia School Board for District 2. And I kind of have a pretty diverse amount of um, work experience and lived experience. Um, I've lived in Washington State most of my life, but I've lived across the United States and back again. Um, and my work really stems from like lobbying to working specifically in getting basic needs and rights for individuals with disabilities, working in independent living centers. Um, I've also worked with youth with disabilities, um, co-running leadership weeks, which uh, taught youth with disabilities everything from how to take the public transportation system, how to manage a budget, how to create friendships, and how to vote, as well as creating emergency preparedness kits. From there, my work kind of stemmed more into an interest in career development, and so I did a lot of career facilitation, working with uh, folks with limited income, single family members, 
and individuals um, involvement in the criminal justice system and helping to get back on track and how to help um, heal relationships and develop relationships. And then really coming back around to retraining folks who had been unexpectedly laid off and helping them to refine careers in in-demand fields. And then education. Education has always been kind of the heart of who I am and the core and fabric that has made me me. <laughs> I started with substitute teaching for a Title I school um, and just fell in love with it. And then when the pandemic hit, kind of was just raising, raising my kiddo and then happened to uh, finally land into my dream job, which I'd been working my entire career to get back to, which was working at the Evergreen State College, where I graduated from, and becoming part of TRIO, which uh, TRIO Student Success is a federally funded program. We work to support folks who are the first in their families to earn their bachelor's degree, and then limited income and or folks with documented disabilities, which I was a TRIO student there. And so for me, that was definitely coming around to back home to the place that built me. The reason that I'm running, and I've been able to give a small picture of this throughout my campaign, but I have a pretty interesting (laughs) and a complex and beautiful history with education. I'm a person living with multiple disabilities. So I have cerebral palsy, which is a physical disability. And then I also have learning disabilities. Those weren't actually (laughs) diagnosed ever. It was just what the school decided um, for me when I was growing up. And so all I ever knew was that I had an IEP and that I was in special ed, which of course meant I had to have learning disabilities (laughs) because Why else would I be there? It stems not only from my own experience of having to navigate a special education classroom and mainstream classrooms, um, but I also have two brothers on my mom's side, and um, one of them uh, has pretty significant ADHD, and watching my brother be removed and kicked out of every classroom that he ever entered, and really seeing that impact that that had on his life and who he was as a person. And then my other brother um, is Mexican-American and seeing how racism in the education system, and I'm gonna just, that's real. Um, And just watching his journey unfold and the incredible barriers um, that he's experienced throughout his whole life. And I think for all three of us, when I look at what the core um, of where it started, yes, it did start with our family background and we really had to, we really had to survive in my family. And, um, but the other core piece of that is our experiences with the educational system and just knowing how incredibly complex the, all of the transitions, I think that students go through, whether it's going into elementary school for the first time or going from elementary and into middle school and then middle school into high school and then from high school and either into apprenticeships, college, or employment, those are all incredibly complex. Um, And I've had a lot of lived experiences with those. Yes, my lived experience is mine, but I really, I really want to understand all the values that students have. Like, I, like, let me rephrase that. I want the world to see all the values that students have and all the worth 
that they have because I know what it felt like to not have that happen. And that was a travesty. So that's kind of really what got me into wanting to come into the Olympia School Board. And plus, I have a little kiddo who's four and a half now, and he is part of the pre-transitional kindergarten program through Hanson Elementary, which he absolutely loves. And he's also on an IEP. And as somebody who went through an IEP, um, I wanted to know more. Thanks for describing your background and, and all that. And um, yeah, interestingly, the the visibility of sort of like disabilities in education, I think um, it's gotten a, a lot more visible since the pandemic. I mean, I think accommodations, people are more in tune to that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know if it's true or not, but um, I know mental health has definitely come to the forefront. And so I imagine some of the other some of the things that, um, you know, have come out since the pandemic have gotten a lot more exposure. Um, yes. And interestingly, my father was um, an advocate in special ed. He was a special education lawyer slash editor where he wrote about um, legal decisions in this field. And the one thing he did a lot of was he organized um, trainings of administrative law judges to enforce the um, IDEA. Um, so that was his like lifelong passion. At the end of his career was... Um, employed at the um, Seattle University Law School, where um, they sort of sponsored all of this work. Um, so tell me about your current job at Evergreen. Um, so how do you, when you come to your job, like how do you advocate for for the students there? And in a way that brings, you know, I imagine you're trying to bring people together, teachers, staff, and other people. But like, how do you do that? How do you approach that work at your job? Yeah, I mean, what, what's particularly interesting about my job is is that um, TRIO Student Success has always been there as one part of the grant, which is called the Classic TRIO Grant. Uh, when I was hired on, I was hired on through a, a new like sister grant. Um, so it's still part of TRIO Student Success, but it's specific to disability support. So it's a disability support grant through TRIO. I really came in with, with really building it out, right? And part of what that meant was uh, the ability to be able to create a community around disability justice and to create a culture, more of a culture for students with disabilities on the campus. And so what I didn't, <laughs> what I didn't really foresee is it was right in the middle of the pandemic. Uh, so I was hired on in March of 2021. And so for the first time I had to learn how to build advocacy with folks through a virtual world um, versus an in-person world. When I am working with staff or with faculty or students, when it comes to advocating, the first piece is listening. This is really important because every person has an experience in a moment and every person has a truth in a moment. And so when I'm thinking about how to support the needs of my students, I need to know what those are. So being able to learn the story of my student, being able to create a safe space so that they can share with me what their needs are, um, and then what is the experience that they're having within the classroom setting. What I've learned is over time, what I'll try to do is I'll try to meet with the faculty first before I have a combined meeting with the student and the faculty. The, re- the reason I do this is A, because I want to give the faculty or the staff member, um, the space to be able to share their experience with me in in that incident or in that event. 
And also, in case any unconscious ableism comes out um, from that conversation with, with the faculty or the staff, disability rights and disability justice is always evolving and language around it is always evolving and our knowledge around it and best practices around it is always growing. And so being able to have the faculty or staff accidentally come into that space of ableism and then have me be able to absorb it and to educate, hopefully in a loving way. I, I really do. It's about being able to foster uh, an environment where it's okay to make mistakes and the ability to be able to reflect on those and to grow from those. And then from there, coming together with the staff or faculty with the student and having that combined conversation. And usually I'm more of a soundboard. And so um, this, the student and the faculty have the conversation together. And then if there's any gaps that have occurred in that conversation that I know, uh, based on the fact that I spoke to those individuals, I'll kind of bring it to light or I'll help them articulate questions. That way they can get the answers they need in order to move forward and to progress to meet the needs of both the student and the faculty or staff. So I really do have more of like a holistic and humanistic approach in how I advocate for students and staff and faculty. And from everything I've heard about Evergreen, that makes complete sense. <laughs> <laughs> um, so wait, the, could you, what was your position there? What's their, like, what is your like title given there? Yeah, so it's the Trio Student Success Disability Support Academic Specialist. Okay. <laughs> Evergreen, they tend to do those long titles. Um, and how has your time at Evergreen been? I mean, I know that small liberal arts colleges are having a moment um, across the country. And of course, Evergreen's enrollment isn't what it used to be. But like, I'm just curious from your perspective, um, how has it been? Yeah, so um, it's it's really interesting. So because I graduated in 09, kind of like what was considered the height of enrollment. So I think around 4000 students around that time. Um, and so to come back in March of 2021, that was that was really um, that was a pretty wild experience. <laughs> Sometimes when I was like rolling across Red Square, I'd almost envision being in like the Wild West and a tumbleweed would come flying by. Like it just it was so quiet, mm. just kind of like this ghost town at the really at the winter spring of last year. We really started to see evergreen come to life again. And I think it's going to be even more this year. Enrollment's picking up. Energy is picking up, which is a big piece of Evergreen itself is is the community piece and the involvement piece. And so it, it is, it's definitely coming around. Mm -hmm. Whether it'll ever be the same that it was? No, I don't think so. Because I don't think, honestly, any school will ever be the same that they ever were before the pandemic. You, you know, like they were before the pandemic. I think in, in many ways, we, we've grown. We've grown to learn about our curriculums and our classrooms and the way that we work and the way that we collaborate and really tapping into student needs and talking about them. Evergreen is a pretty amazing place, particularly as it's evolving, evolving. And I really love the fact that we have a lot more certificates for students to tap into 
whether they're brand new students or current students, I think that that is a really great opportunity for folks to learn. So I know I would have really loved to have a certificate when I was when I was getting my degree. So I'm, I'm really happy that they're providing that as an opportunity. Yeah. And if enrollment picks up, it, it just sounds like everyone will be busier, including you, because you'll have more students to work with. And With disability support, we are typically capped out. So it's me and one other um, comrade of mine. Uh, so there's two of us that specifically work with disability support. And ours usually goes to, so each of us has about 55 to 57 students each. And so we keep them on a relatively smaller case management scale only because um, there is more of a, of a higher uh, awareness of needs and supports for, for our students um, and more needs of being aware of accommodations and those pieces. And we also do a lot of training around being a student with a disability and, and learning in the context of learning styles, like who are you as a learner? Like, what does it mean to learn as somebody who has ADHD, right? And so we do a lot of different like trainings and workshops around those things and for faculty as well. I don't know, quickly, what would like a day look like for you? I'm imagining you actually on, you're physically located there, um, at least as, I don't know, you, you can tell me. Yeah, so I, I am physically located on the campus. I do um, one remote day a week. And so typically um, I'll roll into the office, I'll open up my email, I'll open up Google Voice because uh, a pretty significant number of my students will actually text my Google Voice and that's the easiest way to be able to get a hold of them. So I'll check that. I'll check my email. I will make sure and look at to see if there's any um, new holds, if anything has changed with their financial aid status regarding whether or not they have awards or there needs to be different pieces to be completed in order to get the financial aid award. I'm looking at making sure that there's registration. So I'm really the kind of behind the scenes. I like to have my students think of me as their own private personal academic investigator. Mm. Um, so I'm I'm really the point person to ensure that um, if something is going to happen that might impact their academic success, I'm going to come in as that safety net that they can land on. And hopefully by the time they've landed, I've already solved the problem. So I do all those back behind the scenes pieces. And then I also meet with students one-on-one. So I'll usually meet with them regarding just like classes or um, a lot of what has surprised me um, is a lot more of like just the expression of learning about disability identity and that coming into play for them, which is really cool. So so that's that's been a complete gift to be able to receive that from students, just this complete open honesty about, you know, who they are and where they're at in their own understanding of disability and being able to provide that safe space. And it is, it's so interesting because it's, it feels different than when I was a student at the college, like definitely like disability seems to be like on the rise of cool. (laughs) Um, And that, which is really great. That makes me, that makes my heart really happy and that makes just like all the work I do feel that much more fulfilling. And so then we do trio courses for students. So I do some of the curriculum for that. And then I do trio workshops 
and then I also do um, different events. And one of the events that I most recently just did, because uh, part of my job is to help create disability engagement and culture and community, um, is we were lucky enough, Evergreen had Josh Blue as the commencement speaker. Com commencement speaker. So Josh Blue uh, is a fellow Evergreen alumni, and he has cerebral palsy. And he happens to be a comedian who, who's just incredibly awesome. And so he was the commencement speaker. And so when I found, found that out, I wrote, wrote out to marketing. And I said, hey, is it possible to do like a, a brief meet and greet with Josh? And so marketing wrote back and they said, absolutely. Let's see if we can make that happen. And so they had me do a couple things. And then they got in touch with uh, Josh's manager. And long story short, um, Josh did do a meet and greet with with trio students and it was a really it was a really incredible experience and the students were so grateful for it and they were just so ecstatic and and um i think that josh had a great time all i can't speak for him but uh, i think he did and um just to be able to see you know the success and the ability to be able to to meet goals and i i know that josh is famous but you know Josh is also a dad and Josh was also a student who graduated and and Josh is an athlete and those are all identities that like my students, a lot of them can, you know, relate to. And so to be able to see, yeah, somebody somebody was able to accomplish these things that I either I'm working toward or I, or I want to do that. That was probably one of the highlights that I've got to do with my job so far. Yeah, it sounds like an amazing opportunity. Yeah. For you and your and your student and the students there, thanks for describing that. Uh, yeah. I wanted to start to talk about what's going on with Olympia Schools. Mm -hmm. um, I could go in and describe how I see the landscape, but um, instead, why don't you kind of talk about w what's going on and why and what your interest is in um, you know helping make uh, the schools better and and working with other folks on the school board. So what, so what I, I do want to say is that I, I am understanding that I'm coming from a lens that is on the outside of the school board itself. And so, so I think that that's really important for me to acknowledge and that I'm not in the inside yet. And hopefully that I will get to be part of that board and have a much deeper understanding. And so kind of what I'm seeing is a lot of, um, mistrust that the community has of the school board. I'm also seeing and hearing, so like when I've attended meetings, it seems like there is a lot of um, like tiredness. There's a lot of like possible just burning out a little bit. There does seem to be a little bit of a dissonance between the members. And you know, that could just be my total misreading just because I haven't learned their work styles yet. I think in some ways, everybody is kind of moving through the aftermath of COVID. So everyone's kind of going through like a grieving process, um, if, if that makes sense. And it's a confusing one and it's a complicated one. And we're really seeing the aftermath of what this thing that shook our, our entire world um, has had on the educational system. And I, I, I do want to say that even though I, think that things could be strengthened. I do want to recognize that 
I wasn't on the school board going through that process in the middle of a pandemic. I can't imagine how difficult that must have been and the hours and the decisions that had to be made. But what I can say is what I would to continue to see happen. And I want to speak to something that you said a little bit earlier, Howard, which is there does seem to be a little bit of a change in accommodations and options for kids in special ed. And it does seem to be strengthened. And I would absolutely agree with that. The educational system right now, at least from my experience um, in Olympia with my kiddo, is they really do seem to want to have the best interest in helping the student thrive in education. And I, I know one of the things that um, I said during my, my kids' assessment was, tell me how special education is different than what it was 20 years ago. Um, I, I think the fact is, is that people are understanding more about learning disabilities, but also the value of, of students who think in, you know, different ways and being able to contribute and that those are things that are going to actually enrich our schools and also just being able to support those students more and being part of of the school and I don't think that every school does it does it perfectly you know at least from what I'm kind of learning from from other folks but when we think about in terms of equity for students I think that that can always be strengthened and that that does need to be strengthened because the way that um, education still does have disciplinary the disciplinary models in place that are more still targeted towards students from underrepresented communities, that's still that's still a big problem. So I think that that's part of where I really come from in what I see lacking in schools. Also the understanding of students' cultures and respecting them and lifting them up and trusting students to be able to share those pieces of themselves without being shamed or being that's not part of the, the school codes or standards i think that that's that's also really important i think we don't have enough of each other's histories um in schools i wanted to talk about the um i don't know what i see as the core issue the struggle with how we manage our schools and hear okay. what you th- hear what you think about it and and okay. to me it's just like you know funding right like we have <laughs> Declining enrollment, which was really brought to light by the analytics firm, they they did a presentation of our, in, our you know our forecasted enrollment for Olympia School District, and it's mm-hmm. it's declining essentially, you know. So, mm-hmm. and we're funded by okay. you know our, our enrollment. So it, yeah. it just seems like we're um, we're having to better manage the money, uh, the smaller amounts of money that we'll be receiving. You know, and I'm not an expert in this issue at all, but I've been learning a little bit about what's it called, the prototypical model that is used to fund different positions um, in different districts and how it's come up with. And that's something I, I, I strive to understand better. But um, the Association of Washington School Principals has a good, you know, description of the sort of equivalents that are assigned to elementary, middle and high schools based on okay. how many students are enrolled. Do you have any thoughts about school funding and like, I don't know, or, or, or maybe you don't agree with me that that's not the biggest issue. <laughs> so funding is absolutely an issue. Yes. So here, 
is also where I'm thinking like the crux of it is somebody who is coming on, particularly after a budget's already been been approved, right? Mm. And there are only so many grants that a school can apply for, you know, McCleary. The thing that, and I know a lot of folks have asked me about the budget, and the thing is, is um, the budget is always, especially in these next few years, is is going to be pretty tight. I'm thinking about more outside of the box ways because I don't think I can make money, Howard. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I, like, if I'm being completely truthful, I don't think I'm gonna find hidden funds anywhere, and I wish that I could absolutely say. Otherwise, I think the thing that you said about the Principals Association, mm. I think that's a really great resource for me to to know about and to look at and to learn and to learn about more. Mm. So, so thank you for that because I'm going to look at that so yeah. I be- can become more familiar with what you were describing. Um, but I'm thinking a lot about is in leaning into what is it that we already have in Olympia community. Folks have said, well, we, we're, we've already leaned into everything, but here's the really beautiful part about Olympia and about a lot of places is there is a lot of hidden things that we probably don't know about. Mm-hmm. Nonprofit organizations, also the schools like bridging together um, and not just Olympia school districts, but I'm thinking like Olympia working with like North Thurston or Tomwater or you know, the Olympia School District working with Evergreen and SPSCC in St. Martin's and really um, melding resources and showing up for each other. I, I, I do uh-huh. think potentially it sounds really naive, but I think one of the ways that I'm thinking about this is I work for an organization who, who they are incredible about modeling how to partnership. And I just look at them as a is an absolute um, standard for being able to look at needs and saying, okay, well, who can we connect with in order to meet that need in a more creative way? So we may not be able to fund an additional school counselor, but we might be able to um, have this organization come in, get approval from the school district and have this organization come in and be able to provide the resources to the families, to the students, and to the teachers, and to the staff. And what's really beautiful about this way of doing it is it doesn't place more weight onto teachers and paraeducators, mm-hmm. which are already, that weight is heavy enough. That's really the framework that I'm going to be working with is my husband calls me like I'm a little octopus. And I have like <laughs> these these tentacles of these connections of people and ideas um, and being able to really bring them together. And I think that's also something that my previous um, trio director recognized about me too, which is why she called me the great connector, nice. um, is that I'm really able to do that. I create, I can meet people in a very short amount of time and I create long lasting relationships. And I think it really comes down to understanding who people are, but respecting who they are and coming in with a lot of humility about learning what they have to offer. And I think that the schools and the community has a lot more to offer each other. We just maybe haven't tapped into it yet because we're all so burnt out. Mm -hmm. And so when I'm thinking about increased funding, I'm not necessarily thinking about money. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about enrichment through other pots of stuff. 
And so that's kind of where I come into play when it comes about funding. Obviously, at the end of the day, I am always going to try and work with the board to see if there is more monies that we can find. But if that can't happen, then there's got to be a different route that we can go to to continue like the success of these schools and not have them struggling the way that some of them are right now. Nice. I was going to ask you about um, how do you see since the the um, the federal funds for um, I think it's called ESSR are drying up, and how would you sort of meet the needs of students who, who oh. need counseling and mental health going forward? But you kind of answered that question. <laughs> yeah, the ESSR funds. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's what's happening with the ESSR is really, really unfortunate. I wonder. Part of me wishes that we hadn't been all quick to fill those positions so quickly. Mm. I wish that possibly we would have been able to fill some of them and take a step back to see how they were working first Mm. and then to be able to implement more. So that way maybe our SRs could have gone longer. Mm. But at the end of the day, I think everyone did what they needed to do in a experience that they've never had to work through before. And that's from what I understand, the Olympia School District just hired more people and and it yeah. makes me wonder, whereas other school districts may have used their money a little differently, um, and it makes mm-hmm. me wonder if the way we did it was sustainable. And it's like it's hard to, it's hard to put out there that you're hiring people, but it when the funds run out, that they may not have a job anymore. <laughs> and so. yeah, and that's the most heartbreaking piece mm-hmm. about all of this, right? And I almost feel like by me even suggesting that as an idea of like maybe it would have been better to implement on a slower means that it could have provided more longevity that makes me feel almost like a little arrogant or like but I Mm. I just think that like that's the fun that's the thing is is like you add a little bit you see how it's working and if there's gaps then you fill those gaps and I think that would have possibly and who knows, I could be totally wrong, Howard, hmm. but that's that's the thing is maybe we wouldn't have had to let so many people go or maybe not with the same, the same like, because I mean, when they got let go, they got let just let go. I mean, it was, hmm. it was, it was devastating to see on the outside um, hmm. and maybe it could have been a slower burn for them to get let go to where they already had something in place for themselves. And, and that's an ideal, or maybe we found them a different place within in this in the education system in Olympia School District. But yeah, there's something that I do think about all the time when I think about Esser because yeah, I mean there's just so many incredibly talented folks and um that was it was hard. It was a hard hit. Mm-hmm. Something I thought about curious to hear your take on are the re- relationships with the public that public versus private schools have. In my head the um you know the more people that attend private schools the less funding there is for public schools. And in my limited experience, personal experience with this, um, I find that private schools to be far less accountable to the public than public schools are. Um, but do you think there's a place place for private schools maybe exist in this sphere without taking away from public schools? Yeah, it's an interesting dynamic, right? Because I also think, you know, are we considering charter schools to also be counted into like the private education idea? Sure. Yeah. 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 So I think my hesitation with saying, you know, the um, private schools can play 
a really um, great role in the lives of students who don't necessarily consider. Um, I almost don't say that it's not that they don't fit into the non to the traditional system, but the traditional system just didn't figure out how to um, help them <laughs> fit in. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so I do see private schools really being able to help students thrive in ways that weren't available to them in the standard public school. Um, ideally, what I would love to see, right, because when we think about some of the, like you said, private schools aren't held accountable as much, right? And so they can go ahead and they can do things a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. And what I would love to see is that the public K-12 is being able to incorporate continued incorporation because I think they're already doing some really amazing work is a continued incorporation of inclusive uh, classrooms um, or universal design for learning. I just know that a lot of folks are tired of hearing UDL, but um, so inclusive classrooms. And I think that if we are able to structure classrooms that actually do provide that value of inc inclusive practices, um, um, not that I want private. Oh gosh, this is I'm 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 just gonna say it. Um, you know, <laughs> private schools and charter schools may not need to be as much. You know, there might be a very specific reason why there could be um a private school, and I think about that in the context of there are schools that really do highly specialize in uh, working with uh, with students uh, with disabilities. And that those are really, really great. And that's exactly what student, some students need. Um, but I would really love to see it private schools on a more rare basis. Mm -hmm. um, and being able to look at curriculum as a way not to force students to fit in, but curriculum that molds around students for who they are. Yeah, that resonates with me too. Um... I had a kid that went to uh, a number of, well, went to a private school, but also went to public schools and finally found a good school at Avanti because mm -hmm. they operate in the way that you just described. You know, it, I'm, I'm so surprised to know that Avanti actually existed <laughs> and um, I was so pleased. Um, so, I mean, personally, I think there's some downsides and some upsides to to yep. private schools. I just wish all the schools, I just wish there was money for all schools, I guess is what I'm saying. Yes. Um, and there wasn't a need to, you know, for private schools. So, uh, let's see. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about some of the issues. I know you were talking about bringing and working across school district, possibly for solutions. Um, I know that there's like a regionalization issue and funding that different districts get. And I don't completely understand this yet, so I'm not going to pretend to. So if a district essentially touched the Puget Sound, they got um, different amounts of money, I think more amounts of money than districts that didn't. But there hmm. was some discrepancy between that because Yelm and North Thurston got money, whereas Olympia didn't. Right. Okay. And I don't know if you know about this issue, um, but there's that issue. And there's also just the, um, the special ed money um, about the state um, setting a level for um, special ed funding, which is applied, I can think, broadly to mm -hmm. all districts, at least the, the numbers of staff they supply, which means that, like, I think districts that have more special ed need, they're underfunded in that area. 
right? And they have a gap, so they have to make up for it somehow. Um, but do you, I don't know, do you have any experience or, or like thoughts or ideas about those two issues? Yeah, so um, so I'm also <laughs> really learning about how re regionalization works as well. Um, I'm just going to be candid about that. Mm -hmm. um, it's something that I'm definitely vested in continuing to understand because it's something that affects our schools. When we talk about equitable funding, I do not think that it is okay for Yellman or Thurston to get additional monies when the Olympia School District just does not. I, I think that goes against what we're, we're being told mm -hmm. as Olympia School District, right? Like there's a certain set of monies that everyone can get. And well, that's obviously, that's just not true. And, um, and that's a problem. You know, I don't know what the specific solution to that is. And I'm certainly going to look into it. I mean, part of what I like to do is figure out who are the people to talk to about those things and then mm -hmm. to learn more from them <laughs> to make me yep. more knowledgeable. But um, that's, that's what I do, too. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. It's uh, you know, it's it's just the way to do it. And um, yep. the thing about special education, I mean, this is it's just been a gap forever <laughs> mm -hmm. in terms of special ed having um you know, limited funding or not the type of funding that would actually make it so that, you know, teachers and paraeducational staff and teacher aides and students are feeling like they are thriving, and especially with the ESSERS going. I mean, hmm. I can imagine that that just feels completely overwhelming and then not to get the the funding that was being fought for for special education. And, and it, this is really hard because, again, I'm at a disadvantage because I'm not going to be able to make money. I'm thinking about this in the context of um, when I used to run youth leadership weeks. You know, is there more way ways to get students with disabilities outside of the special education classrooms? Is there ways to um, help make them feel like they're members of the community? And... Um, is there um, field trips or is there events or is there skills that they could be learning that aren't just in an OSD classroom? Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't specifically know the answer to that, but I, you know, I do come from that background of the independent living centers. And so is there a way that we can create more opportunity to gain independence? Well, and also gaining the skills that are going to help with the transitional plans that they'll have to do. It's it's a tough thing because um, I think part of also too what what I want folks to understand about like the school board position <laughs> that I'm that I'm learning about more every day. Um, the school board member um, approves budget, but we don't necessarily get to make decisions around that budget we can advocate for things we can look at things it, it really is coming down to supporting folks who are wanting to um i don't know if lobby is the right word howard but like no. folks who are really showing the support behind folks who are really pushing the state to say like hey this isn't okay we have this huge gap here that is not being filled and we need the support inner support these students. I mean, this is the thing, and somebody said it so eloquently to me on a recent Reddit AMA that I did. 
mm. when they were asking me what I was going to do to support teachers and her educators. And one of the things I did say was, is that I wanted to learn like their needs. Right. And the person was like, well, it, it also, it should be about empowering them. And they were absolutely right. And I'm glad that they called me out on that. Um, because I think that like, that is part of the role that goes into a school board member. So being able to empower the community and the district and the teachers and the paraeducators and the families and the students to be able to raise their voice mm -hmm. for more supports and more rights within the system that isn't providing that to them. Um, I wanted to ask like a softer question. Tell us about a time when you saw a problem in the community or the college over there or wherever you developed an idea to address it and implement it. Yeah, <laughs> so uh, I do this quite often. <laughs> mm -hmm. When uh, when I first came on, a lot of this stuff was around like the buzzword was executive functioning and equity, but people knew the word universal design for learning, but they didn't really understand what that meant. What they were really looking for was um, scaffolding to be able to understand the way that students learned and to help create a classroom that uh, enriched that learning for, for students, right? Particularly students with neurodivergence. Really, um, I went and got additional training that was specifically designed around this. And so being able to really um, introduce faculty. So I, I led a um, co-led a two-day training with a faculty, um, training other faculty and staff um, about um, neurodivergence and um, learning. And so basically it was a two-day workshop that really looked at core concepts such as cognitive load theory, executive functioning, working memory, and, and like um, an emotional regulation and how all those pieces played into whether or not a student would be able to learn in a classroom and specifically took them through some scenarios that students who have dyslexia or ADHD may experience. So um, writing scenarios while having really loud music playing in the background, right? Mm -hmm. While you're giving instruction and kind of getting a sense of what that might feel like. And let me say, that's just not like, it's not going to get the full experience, but to give some sort of understanding of like, oh, this actually hampers my learning. And then um, for them to actually demonstrate their understanding of what cognitive load theory was. And are you familiar with cognitive load theory, Howard? No, but I know that I listen to music all the time when I'm doing my work, so. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so very briefly, cognitive load theory is basically what a, a, a student can input while they're learning. So for instance, if you're teaching um, a student math and you're teaching them the vocabulary of the math, that is literally what they're going to walk away from. Mm -hmm. But if you're teaching them the vocabulary of the math, well, you're actually trying to teach them how to do the math, it's not going to work. Mm -hmm. because it's too much of a cognitive overload. Mm -hmm. um, they're focusing on two different things all at once, and they're not actually absorbing each of those things, and their working memory is being overtaxed. And so it's really about being able to focus in. So if you're going to teach math vocabulary, that's what you do that day. And then maybe the next day you teach how to do the equation. 
right? So it's mm -hmm. sparsing mm -hmm. it. Um, mm -hmm. So kind of really helping faculty understand what that meant. And they, they got to do this in manipulative format. So they either built uh, cognitive load theory or working memory, either through Lego or uh, mm. through Play-Doh or through drawing. And one of the faculties did like a drawing with some posters, which is really cool. Um, and basically got to understand exactly how students' brains work while learning. So that was really cool. Um, and then the current thing that I'm doing right now is um, I'm working towards getting leadership to include the word access. So adding the A for access into DEI work we're very fortunate that we still get to do DEI work in Washington, but having access at the fourth in with that, because access isn't just about disability, like everybody has needs. And when we think about access, it provides opportunities for everyone, but we can't forget that that is an actual thing to focus. So I'm working on that with leadership. And then I did write a letter uh, to the president about um, creating a basic life skills certificate program. Um, and I really saw this need from students who were coming out of high school and into college. And um, so being able to do financial wellness, being able to learn how to um, manage a bank account. How do you use the bus once you get a, a bus card? Uh, which we, we do that for free. Oh, well, the bus is free here. Yay! Um, and then, um, you know, how do you have, you know, communication in conflict with roommates? Or how do you even just introduce yourself to somebody um, who you've never had to live with before, right? And so, like, all these basic skills, putting that into a two-credit certificate. And uh, he said he was really eager, um, and he moved on up to leadership. Um, so we'll see, but I also was talking to somebody else and they said that that might be a really great thing to incorporate into summer education. So, oh yeah. 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 So I'm really, I'm really excited. Um, you know, but I also recognize that my job is also to learn like, and I, I haven't won the election, but you know, if I were to be on school board, my job is also just to listen and to figure out the role of being a school board member. But I do have some really cool, cool pieces that I think could bring some really great scaffolding into play. Sounds good. Yeah, I don't think they're going to expect you to make money. So. <laughs> oh yeah, I wish I could. Dude, it's like it's like okay, school board members. Now that you're on, you got to get your side <laughs> hustles going. <laughs> oh, if only it worked that way. I'd love to be able to have a side hustle that I could use to support students. <laughs> like time to do our bake sale. I don't know. <laughs> Gosh, yeah. that's what we don't want to be doing. But anyway, <laughs> um, hey, this has been a really great conversation. It's been nice to to meet you and um, good luck with the rest of the race. Thank you so much, Howard. Thank you. This has been the Olympia Standard. Thank you to Howard for jumping in. Hopefully we hear more from Howard in future shows. And if you want to be a coward, and if you like what we're doing here, and want to talk about how you can help, drop me a line and we can chat. Where do you drop me a line, you ask? You can send me an email at theolympiastandard at gmail.com. I only seem to get SEO pitches there anymore, so it would be great to hear from you all. You can also find the Olympia Standard on Facebook at the Oli Standard. We are also at PNWZone slash at the Oli Standard for those on Mastodon, and more of you should be there anyway. 
This show is produced by Jimmy Joe, and you can find his music at jimmyjoe.bandcamp.com. The theme music was produced by Jimmy's best friend, Guire McGuire.